So I want to speak fairly briefly tonight, brothers, about the uh, about the cross and the, the nature of the cross. And human sins are a personal offense to God. So we find in Psalm 51, verse 4, David, after having sinned, of course, with the wife of Uriah, and therefore sinning against Uriah, but also having sent Uriah to his death, and having enlisted people in a conspiracy to bring about his death and therefore distributing his sin and causing scandal. After all that, David says, against you, you only have I sinned so that you are and done that which is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless in your judgment. So sin is fundamentally a personal offense against God, even when it involves damage to people or disruption of relationships or harm to other people. At the same time, offenses against God are different than offenses against ordinary beings, against human beings. On the one hand, because of God's greater glory and majesty and dignity, they're more offensive. It's a greater offense to sin in a small way against God than it would be to sin even in a larger way against a fellow creature. On the other hand, God can't be harmed by our sins. So Job says in chapter 35, verses 6 to 7, If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? When we offend against God, it's not that we take something from him that's a loss for him. We don't create harm for God by our sin. And that's important. That's important because it means that in the incarnation of the Son of God, we don't have a self-interested decision. The Lord didn't lose something that he needs to gain back for his sake. It wasn't a decision that in any way enriched God or comforted him for some loss or protected him from some future contingency that might involve harm for him. That means that the coming of Christ is pure grace. There is no self-interest in it. And that's of an entirely different realm of relationship than we're used to, because when David Dolson sins against me in some way, he either harms me, or he at least causes me the loss of good relationship with him. Aquinas uh, has a, a comment on Ephesians 2.4 that talks about God being rich in mercy. And he combines a couple of these observations. He says, first, the mercy of man is limited because he can only pardon offenses against himself. 
This is what we see in the gospel. Famously, C.S. Lewis says, when the Lord Jesus says your sins are forgiven, on the one hand, of course, the Jews react because who can forgive sins but God alone? But as Lewis points out, it's audacious even on a human level because many of Lewis's sins, not that there are many of Lewis's sins, I'm not imputing many sins of Lewis, but they have nothing to do with me. He, he insults Peter, then I step in and say, I forgive you. <laughs> what right do you have to forgive me? So our mercy is limited because we can only pardon personal offenses. And sometimes, in fact, we're in positions in which we don't have the power to pardon. If I'm a judge in a court case and a man comes before me who's guilty, I don't have the right to pardon him out of my own grace because I represent a higher law. So he says human beings are limited because they can only uh, forgive offenses against them. Sometimes they're limited by their position, but sometimes they're limited because they can't create by their indiscriminate pardon the possibility of the person sinning uh, with impunity. They can endanger themselves by being merciful, in other words. So he says, because sentence is not speedily pronounced against the evil, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set to do evil, uh, quoting Ecclesiastes. But nothing can harm God, and God holds all authority, and so God can pardon every offense. And recognizing all this serves not to minimize, but actually to magnify the grace and the mercy of God in what Christ accomplishes for us. Because he had nothing to gain from it, it's an act of pure grace. On the other hand, that's not the whole story. In the incarnation, which God foresaw before the foundation of the world, Ephesians also tells us, God puts himself in the position to endure harm and suffering. God cannot in himself be harmed, cannot be endangered, can't suffer. But in the incarnation, God not only pardons, but he puts himself in what, in the popular phrase we would use these days, uh, is harm's way. In fact, he puts himself in the certainty of harm because he foresaw it all. He comes in the dependence of human form, and he's threatened from the very time of his birth by a corrupt, psychopathic king. His entire public ministry is characterized by conflict, by misunderstanding, even misunderstanding on the part of his closest friends and disciples. In the exasperation that follows on that. Oh, you of little faith has to be on the the human level, also a kind of cry of exasperation. Have I been with you so long, Philip? This is our last night together and you still don't know me. And these are your closest friends and associates and just plain hard work. 
There are a couple of stretches in the gospel where if you go through and you trace what's Jesus doing over these couple of days, you realize all he is doing is healing and working and then pulling away from the crowd and somebody else follows him. At the climax of his ministry, he's rejected by the leaders of his people. And he receives the soldier's slap and he suffers Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. And then he's subject to public mockery and he endures acute physical pain from people who seem very eager to abuse him. In all this, God took on voluntarily, in fact, so that he could go through this for the sake of human beings. Christ endured all of this temporarily for the sake of the joy that was set before him. And he's now, of course, enthroned in glory. He sits at the right hand of the Father, there to reign until his enemies become his footstool. For a short time, he was lower than the angels, but now no longer. And that's absolutely crucial because Christ didn't come simply to empathize with us, but to gain something for us. He's now enthroned in the heavens, but he still bears the marks of his suffering. He's still the lamb who was slain, and presumably always will be. And I just want to draw a couple of points from this. First, this demonstrates for us in a way that's as comprehensible as it could be for us as human beings, how much God loves us. I'm not making a surprising, deeply theological point for you brothers at a very subtle level. This shows us how much God loves us. He endured this suffering for the sake of the human race. Not only that, but Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in the, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, And Paul goes on a couple of verses later and he He fleshes that out. He says, enemies of God. And Christ died for us. But it wasn't an empty show. Sometimes people say Christ came so that he could show us how much God loves us. And that can sound a little odd. We were talking over dinner about uh, Vincent uh, van Gogh, or Vincent van Gogh, as everybody in America calls him, uh, who at one point cut off his own ear and put it in the post to send it to his uh, would-be girlfriend to show her how much he loved her. That's odd. That's weird. That's not what Christ did. Christ came to accomplish something for us, and he came to accomplish something for us that maybe... God could have done to some degree otherwise. He could at least have pardoned us by divine royal decree, just announced a pardon. At least that's what many uh, teachers in Christian tradition say, Augustine says, or Aquinas, or other people say, could God have just pardoned us? Well, I suppose he could. But he couldn't have done what he did do 
if he just pardoned us. Because when he came among us, he ennobled us and changed us. Cyril of Alexandria says, if he conquered as God, to us it's nothing. But if he conquered as man, we conquered in him. For he is to us a second Adam come from heaven, according to the scriptures. So in talking about the first and the last Adam, Paul can say, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can hear that in two different ways. Thanks be to God, who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But you can also hear the other resonance in it. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for us, but we have now triumphed over sin and death and the devil. The Lord identifies with us so that he can raise us. So that the one who for a while humbled himself and was exalted can raise us up with him. That's how much God loves us. He didn't just simply say, Mitchell, it's okay. Okay, 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 fine, Mitchell. He came among us so that he could ennoble us. That's restoring the relationship in full. Because our our penalty isn't just remitted, our punishment isn't just taken away, but we're put in the good graces of God. So when he looks on the human race, what he sees and loves in us is precisely what he's accomplished for us in the Son. Second simple point for all this. This gives us the model and the measure of brotherly love. The New Testament, when it exhorts us to imitate Christ, almost always exhorts us to imitate the way that he went through suffering, or even more commonly, it imitates us, it, it exhorts us to imitate him in love. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or John chapter 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And of course, the foot washing itself was an act of humility. But later, the Lord is going to say to them, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And within 24 hours, they come to realize that he's not just talking about washing feet. He's talking about laying down your life. And that's now the measure and the model of what it means to love the brethren. Second, in particular, the example of Christ banishes the notion of treating your brother simply as he deserves. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I, Paul says, am the foremost of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason, 
that in me, as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I, I became the model of Christ's patience with the human race. Why? Because he was a persecutor of the church. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. That word tenderhearted means from the, the it means have good bowels toward one another. <laughs> you know, after just having eaten a load of unleavened bread, maybe that's hitting home for you. <laughs> but it actually means that our whole being, including our affections, should be engaged toward our brother. We should be soft-hearted toward one another. And therefore ready to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. Finally, last of these passages. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Somehow for me, this exhortation comes home to me more than the 70 times 7. You remember the other passage like this, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? The Lord says, no, not seven times. 70 times 7, which is 490 if you're keeping track. (laughs) Some of us have lived together long enough that we've far surpassed that. (laughs) This... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's what comes home to me about this passage. If your brother sins against you seven times in the day, and when I hear this, I think to myself, so I, I can imagine somebody coming back to me seven times, maybe even in a single day. And I'd probably be pretty good for the first two. And the third time I'd be thinking I'm doing really well and I'm being pretty doggone magnanimous here. By the time we get to six, I would be ready to kill him. <laughs> and probably if it's seven times a day, it's a pretty minor thing. But I've had those seven, seven time days. And the Lord says, if he, turn, if, he, if, he, if he sins, rebuke him, and then he repents, forgive him. And he turns around and he does it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And that's the measure of the patience that we're supposed to show one another. So the Lord Jesus comes and by choice suffers for us. By choice does what he didn't have to do, even in order to forgive us, in order to pardon us, because he wants to raise us, because he wants to put us back in good graces. And that means that this now becomes the mark of the way that we relate to our brothers. And we're in preparation for our counsel. We're thinking about our relationships with one another. 
can get back through some of the basic biblical teaching on Christian personal relationships. And this ought to really be at the forefront of our mind. The proper comparison for us with Christ is Christ the merciful high priest, not Christ who will come again to judge. He'll come and he'll judge on his own. And he calls us in this age to imitate his example of forbearance and kindness and mercy and forgiveness. Amen.